Welcome to OT Conversations That Matter, the podcast. My name is Justine Jecker, and I will be hosting today's conversation on neurodiversity with occupational therapists Naomi Hazlitt and Melissa Crossgrave. The term neurodiversity includes people who experience differences in learning, thinking, and engaging with the world around them. Examples can include autism spectrum disorder, ASD, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, among other diagnoses. Neurodivergent OTs promote occupational participation through a strengths-based approach and assist individuals in navigating barriers such as systemic, environmental, social, and physical barriers. They support the development of self-advocacy and self-determination in individuals across the lifespan. This year, CAOT will be offering five workshops related to neurodiversity in 2022 and 2023, and one featured speaker presentation at CAOT Conference 2023 presented by Moira Pena. This podcast will focus on the introductory concept of neurodiversity. Naomi Hazlitt is a neurodivergent occupational therapist with lived experience of chronic pain and mental illness. She received two degrees at the University of Toronto, a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and Cognitive Science, and a Master's of Occupational Therapy. Naomi co-authored the editorial for March 2022 issue on social accountability and occupational therapy. As co and sole author, she has written and published multiple articles on autism, including on gender and sensory processing. Naomi's practice focuses on working with neurodivergent youth and adults, including running therapeutic tabletop role-playing games and other occupations of interest for neurodiverse folks. Melissa Crossgrey graduated from the University of Ottawa with a BSc in Occupational Therapy in 2000. Early in her career as an OT, she had the opportunity to take a role working primarily with a neurodivergent population within the early child development. This experience sparked her passion and curiosity for ongoing learning in this area. After moving to the North where she worked primarily as a consultant in education, Melissa has more recently embraced self-employment with a focus on supporting neurodivergent children, adolescents and adults, as well as those who have experienced trauma, to access occupations that are important to them. Melissa seeks to advocate for changes in healthcare, education and employment to support her clients to remain authentic to themselves while accessing opportunities for growth, relationship, education and enumeration. Welcome to both of you today. Thanks for having me, Justine. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you, Melissa. There's so much to talk about, and for me, this topic is, it's known but also novel at the same time. And I'm going to start with you, Naomi. How would you describe neurodiversity in the sense, where did this language come from? So one thing that I thought was helpful coming to the show today was to take a step back and think to myself, 
well, who came up with this word and where did it come from? Because it's something that it's a word that more and more I think I'm hearing in social media, in OT practice. But, you know, when you look back, it's actually been around for a long time. It's around 20 years we've had the word neurodiversity, but it's only in the past few that I think that I've heard it kind of being spoken in everyday conversation. So the word, according to Wikipedia, was defined by Judy Singer in around 1999-1998, and uh, Judy herself defined it as the limitless variability of human cognition and the uniqueness of each human mind. And the term aims to view autism, ADHD, and other developmental conditions as naturally occurring in humans rather than pathologies to be cured. So basically in my own words, neurodiversity is just more, it's a, it's a couple of things, right? It's a term that people use for themselves. I identify as neurodivergent. And it's also kind of in a piece of awareness that there is a lot of invisible diversity that exists among many different people. Maybe we focus right now on autism and ADHD, but I, it's an umbrella term and it's inclusive and it's a term that people can use just to talk about those differences in that diversity in general. And it's a great starting point to have a conversation around how we can have inclusive therapy as well from that neurodiverse perspective. Thank you, Judy Singer, for that. I, I think it's incredible to, um, you know, we now live in a time where disability is being looked at very differently through a very different lens. And I think I can imagine she probably felt alone in 1998 when this definition was created, this idea that this is how we are created. We're created differently. It, it's not that it's not being compared to a standard. Is, is that similar for you, Melissa, in the sense of your understanding of the term? Yeah, I would say that's definitely my understanding overall as well. Um, and I would say, just to bring the conversation a little further, what, what I see now is that definitely we are embracing that definition and there's, you know, there's more and more use of those terms um, and talk amongst individuals about embracing neurodiversity, um, where I'm still seeing a lot of differences are in systems, um, or sorry, not seeing differences are in systems, right? So even though there's talk about that definition, people in schools and healthcare in employment are referring to neurodiversity, um, our systems are still working in that more traditional kind of cookie cutter model that, um, does not embrace differences in learning and in being. And um, I'm seeing that as a challenge. Yeah, and that term, it's interesting because without acknowledging it explicitly, I think it makes it hard to create the environment and the understanding within systems. Um, I think of our PIF that was our professional issue forum, for those who don't know the acronym that was done in 2020, that term was not being used and the focus was on autism. So even, even though this definition has been around for 22 to 24 years, um, in, in our mainstream occupational therapy language, it's still, there's really a spectrum. I think for some listeners today, this is their first time even thinking, okay, what is neurodiversity? Whereas others 
feel that they've been self-identifying as a neurodivergent OT probably for many, many years um, in their work. And so when you give your, when you give that introduction to um, to parents or to other care providers, do you, does anyone ever question you? Like, what is this? What are you doing exactly? Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked that, Justine. I'm going to give a really classic OT answer and say it depends. So, you know, we're having, it's an interesting moment to be a neurodiverse OT. I'm mostly, I'm going to say I'm mostly out, but I think that Melissa makes a really good point that there are still spaces and systems where I would not necessarily forefront that part of my identity. So I've been really lucky. I've been working as an OT for five years. And in that time, I've been able to move myself into the spaces where I'm working with neurodivergent, most you know, youth, some children, but also majority adults. And in those spaces where I'm working with neurodiverse people, I identify as neurodiverse. I I display my lived experience alongside my professional experience, but other spaces that are maybe more aligned with the medical model that I still work in, I may not put that experience for in, in the forefront. So, you know, I think it depends on the space. I guess the other part of it is, and there's a whole other conversation on how to use your lived experience as a tool. I think it's, you know, a case by case basis where if I feel like someone may benefit from knowing that, you know, I have this part of my identity, we can bring that into the conversation. Um, but I will say overall, I'm, I'm very happy to say that the reception has been positive, right? Like coming to this show, being invited here, speaking on other podcasts, uh, writing about my experience, whether it was in the March issue or other spaces online. I'm just really grateful that, you know, people like Judy and other pioneers have kind of laid that framework for me to feel comfortable coming out as a neurodiverse OT in a way that maybe I wouldn't have felt as comfortable at all, even as a student or a few years ago. Yeah, that's incredible, Naomi. Um, thank you so much for sharing because you've given two um, understandings of that definition, identifying as a neurodivergent OT as, as a personal attribute that characterizes who you are, as well as a person working with with individuals who identify as neurodivergent. And I think that's in incredible. And, and I understand you graduated in about 2016. So mm -hmm. that when I think of, you know, when I graduated, that idea of um, acknowledging your own, whatever it is, your own background, where you come from, at the time we were calling it disability, that was seen as that that's not what we should be doing. <laughs> that idea of positionality or over information sharing, that was definitely seen as taboo and not best practice. Can you just share a little bit more about that? When you graduated, did you feel that you had the tools and confidence um, through your education or even just through your maybe your placement experiences where you could say, yes, I feel that I can share my experience with others and this is a tool to help them in, in their journey? Oh, I have to say no. The answer is no. I don't feel like 
when I graduated or during my education at the time. Uh, I learned a lot of other really important things to be an OT, but just that conversation wasn't happening. I felt like um, the message that I received or some of the messages that I received were that, you know, as a professional, our role is to be almost neutral, right? Be this sort of blank canvas and orient our focus on the identity of the client and why that's, well, there's a lot of amazing people who have written about why that is damaging. At the end of the day, I think now the conversation has shifted and we are realizing that every single person, every single professional has identities. Some of our identities are more visible, so we can't necessarily have a choice to whether or not people are aware of that part of our identity. And some of them are invisible. Um, and so we do have to have that discussion within ourselves and feel like kind of feel it out whether or not we should disclose. But definitely at the time, I felt that, you know, as an OT, I needed to kind of present this image of perfection or prestige or, you know, I am the expert and you know, you need to follow my recommendations and this is how you're going to grow as a person. And it's just been really an amazing experience over time. Well, I'll say I, it's actually a lot of my clients who taught me a little differently when I came out of school. So I worked originally, I worked right away with people with disabilities in the community. And I just realized I had so much to learn from them. And I learned that you know, over time, at least in the practice settings that I'm in and, you know, based on who who I am as a person, I think the, the approach that I take is more, it's possible to live a full, you know, beautiful life with disability, with difference. And I sense that more and more as a society and as a profession, we're headed in that direction. So I think with that comes inherently that idea of if you feel comfortable, sharing a little bit about where you're coming from, why you're doing what you're doing and what experience that you have. I guess people, you can be more of a role model, I guess, and you can show, I guess, through being that role model that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be fixed. You don't have to be somebody that you're not to participate. Incredible. I see Melissa nodding. That's really resonating with you, Melissa. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because it's something that I think I've always been leaned towards is um, is sharing, maybe oversharing in terms of like you said, like what traditionally we would be expected to do as OTs. Um, and I've always felt that that's a strong uh, starting point for just building relationship and trust, which is really that's that's the first step, right? That's what helps us in an authentic way connect with our clients and be able to enable change with them. So um, so I think there's always room for for helping to build that that trust and relationship. You know, when people see that you've had some personal experience um, or you've got an experience working with other clients who are similar, then they start to go, oh, she she gets me. She gets this. She's done this before. So, you know, it, um, yeah, I just have always found that really helpful. 
And did you notice the difference, Melissa, when you went from being in Ontario to being in the Yukon? Like with this concept in particular, what was the shift that happened when you moved? Or was it was it kind of the same understanding? I think I moved before there was really a big enough shift in the use of this term and the understanding with all of this. I think um, there are so many differences, definitely, with living in the north. One of the areas that's, that stands out for me and that I would really love to explore some more um, is the intersection between culture and then an understanding or definition of neurodiversity, um, particularly working in the north with a large indigenous population, uh, knowing that with their history of residential school, with their history of trauma in, you know, with the medical system, um, I think that that adds a layer, uh, probably multiple layers to, um, you know, their an ability to, uh, to think of how to, to how to say it, but sort of to uh, embrace and trust in, you know, uses of terms and definitions and and ways of caring and supporting individuals even. Um, and so it's something that I would definitely love to explore further. And Naomi, I know in your research and even in your work, you've also looked at that kind of the similar concept, looking at neurodiversity, but looking at gender. But these different intersections are really fascinating because I remember the first time I heard the term two-spirited and nobody had ever defined it for me. I just heard that term and I knew exactly what it meant. Like it was interesting because... I don't even think we were talking about gender issues when it came up and and I remember hearing it and I just knew and I thought wow you know when you take these different cultural lenses of looking at things like the understanding of what is disability the understanding of gender and you look at the concept of neurodiversity you can't help but see yeah people are seeing the world differently right that it is it's really the western dominant view to to categorize what what is known as autism and ADHD and put them in a box and say okay this is a disability so do you want to comment on that a little bit with your experience <laughs> well there's definitely a lot to pull apart there i think you mentioned the indigenous lens like melissa and that's certainly an area that I would love to expand my horizons with, you know, cultural differences in how we think about neurodiversity. But yes, most of my my effort and my research has and my practice now is focusing on, you know, gender and sexuality and neurodiversity and that intersection. So a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, I can't tell you how many women or female identifying people I am seeing in my practice who you know, are getting diagnoses of ADHD and autism in their late 20s, their 30s, their 40s, and they are coming to grips with a lifetime of feeling different and not understanding why. But it goes beyond that because their experience is different than that of a male experience with neurodiversity. And they can't find 
any research that's talking about it or it's very limited. They can't find people who are talking about those experiences. There are more and more. I've been coming across folks on social media that are speaking that experience. But again, just a lifetime of I was different. I was trying to kind of fit in. And now this totally, you know, this explains a lot of who I am. And then the next part of that, which is, and I feel very isolated and I don't know anybody who's like me. So the piece around gender, because neurodiversity has been seen, well, especially autism and ADHD, I'm sure by the time this podcast comes out and in the years following, the ratios will change. So I'm not going to give a number, but from my understanding, I think we're still seeing more males being diagnosed than females. And the criteria for diagnosis being based more on that experience versus the experience of being a woman or a female identifying person with autism and ADHD. So all that is to say is it's an interesting intersection. There's also intersections, like I mentioned, with sexuality. A lot of people who are neurodiverse also are diverse in their gender identity or their sexuality. And there's just so much to dig into in terms of that experience. So, you know, we need to learn more and we also need to make more space for folks who are at those intersections because again, they're, they're just feeling like they don't have a specific support. They don't have resources that are made for them. Yeah, and a lot of you say that we, we need to learn. I love that because um, we aren't, this podcast is really for all occupational therapists in understanding neurodiversity and the role that we play. I, I don't know if there's curricula out there within the 14 universities. I would love for anybody listening to send me a letter and say, Justine, yes, we are teaching neurodiversity, because that would be amazing to know if that term is being taught as part of mainstream occupational therapy curriculum and being taught in a sense that this is something all occupational therapists should know. I'm, I'm wondering, Melissa, with your experience in the North, would you say, um, even if people don't understand the term per se, would you say would you say that concept is universal or that it is it is dependent on your specific role? So you'd have to be working with a specific population to really understand the term neurodiversity. Yeah, that's a, a tough question only because I haven't asked everyone and, and had conversations, right, with, with enough people to really get a sense. I, I do feel like the term, oh, it's hard to say, is out there more and I hear more and more people using it. Um, I would say there are still definitely, you know, lots of pro professionals out there who maybe have heard the term and haven't really explored the meaning of the term and how that applies to their work and to their clients. Um, so I think there's still, yeah, definitely a lot of room to grow. Um, and, and as I mentioned, so one of the shifts, I can give an example of where I've seen it. I think working in the schools, I'm definitely hearing and seeing more educators using that language. Um, and I think some of that understanding is coming. And so where I've really seen a shift, not universally, is in sort of an acceptance that um, some of our uh, neuro neurodivergent kiddos are, you know, there's less of that sort of need, feel for a need or push to, um, you know, 
rehabilitate them and have them shift towards being and looking and acting more neurotypical to use that term but um however there's still a huge gap in terms of well then what are we doing to support their development and their learning and those specific needs that they have um that's where i really still see a, a, a huge gap um, and it, it's difficult. It's difficult for me as an OT to walk into schools and to other environments and see people with so much potential, um, you know, really just floundering and not ha- necessarily having someone who who gets them and understands and is able to support their learning in a meaningful way. Um, and I know, you know, there's a real push for advocacy and it's certainly something I'm doing, but there's also limits, you know, to how much and how fast that advocacy can and change can happen, particularly in, you know, I think about in the North, just as an example, you know, the it's, things are very much government run here. There's not as much private, you know, um enterprise schools are tend to all fit under one umbrella so it um it can be a little bit more challenging i think even to to bring forward change in the north and so building on that a little bit because you talked about what it's like working with neurodivergent populations what is the intervention or modality approach that's different when you say, okay, I'm working with an autistic individual, you know, based on traditional therapies versus this is the approach if you're working with a neurodivergent population. So I know this is a big one. So either Naomi or Melissa, whoever would like to go first. Oh, for me, I think uh, I can jump in and say, I suppose I don't feel like the approach is really different because I feel like as an OT, we are, you know, we're taught and we're, I think probably most of us are born to um, to look at the world and look at people in a really holistic way to observe and see where is it that they are what are their strengths that's one of the differences I think is really looking at a strengths-based model that's something that's changing um, versus looking at deficits that we can remediate and adapt for it's really like let's also um, let's look at strengths and use those strengths to help um, our clients develop Um, yeah so I think that the approach so much hasn't changed in terms of, yeah, for me to see where clients at. It's in now the differences that I'm really pushing with whoever, you know, homes, schools, communities to embrace um, the differences and those strengths and use those to support their development. And so um, that's the part that's challenging because that that that's a stretch. And, you know, so many of our um, again, parents, educators, caregivers, other professionals haven't had enough education. They're not getting training and support on how to meet the needs of someone who has maybe a different trajectory or a different learning style. Um, And so that's another challenge. Yeah, and it sounds like, I'm gonna pass it over to Naomi, but just to summarize quickly, it sounds, like Melissa, the environmental focus is super important in the collective responsibility of supporting neurodiversity is ensuring that social systems 
uh, physical systems, um, emotional systems that are around people identifying as being neurodiverse, but it almost seems like any of us, that those are welcoming and supportive of different abilities, as opposed to making the person fit into a specific system. Absolutely, yeah. For sure, I mean, um, to go off of your, maybe I'll start by commenting on the piece around the environment. So I think coming to this podcast, and speaking to OTs who may be working in so many different fields of practice, I don't think the expectation is, you know, everybody needs to learn how to provide specific individualized intervention to neurodiverse, you know, neurodiverse folks, queer neurodiverse folks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We all have our areas of interest or focus as OTs. So, Thinking from a perspective of inclusive design, I think would be the biggest place to start for anybody's practice. So the example with the school model that you spoke about, Melissa, the idea that let's let's take a let's take a top down approach just for a moment and say walking into a classroom, how could we make this classroom as accessible and inclusive for all learning needs, all differences? So looking at sensory needs, what is the volume like in the classroom? Is there a quiet space? Is there a space where somebody could go to take a bit of a brain break? Are there stimming materials? Um, is Are there headphones? These are things that any OT, any OT could have a bin of stimming materials or headphones or earplugs in their practice. Hospitals are really noisy. I'm sure, I hope I don't have to go to a hospital anytime soon, but I would, if somebody gave me a pair of earplugs, I'm sure I would be incredibly appreciative if I didn't happen to bring my own. So coming into a space and thinking, how do we make this space accessible for as many people as possible with thinking, learning, and sensory differences would be my hope for every OT to be able to do. And then not that this is necessarily a bottom up approach, but I was thinking about your question, Justine, you know, what do you do differently with neurodiverse people? And I was feeling the same way that Melissa was where I was thinking, I don't because it's an invisible difference. Sometimes when I meet a person, I just don't assume anything. I, I assume that they are they have their own differences in the way they think, just like everybody else. And as I got to know a person, I try to respond to that. I don't necessarily focus too much on a diagnosis or a label. I focus more on what is the information that I'm observing or that's being communicated to me. And at least for me personally, it's a privilege to be able to help somebody kind of navigate through how do I communicate what works for me and what doesn't. And the last thing that that kind of follows into is destigmatizing. So if somebody wants to rock in their chair, flap their hands, if they need a break, it's not a big deal. I think there's that fear of if I act differently, if I if my if I or my child acts or speaks differently or has these needs, they're going to not be able to succeed or be productive or make friends. And that's 
just not true, at least in my experience. And so I think it would be much more helpful to focus our energy rather than saying, how do we get rid of these things so that this person can fit in to how do we help this person connect with others, find people like them, or maybe even relate, you know, find spaces where they are accepted and included or find even professions or jobs that are a good fit for them because there there definitely are. Yeah, and it made me, as you're talking, Naomi, I'm imagining um, social norms and social behaviors, right? Just typical classrooms and a certain behavior equals something. So if you're sitting in a chair, you're facing forward, you're not talking to anybody, you're not fidgeting, that physical message tells the teacher that you're paying attention. I, I think a huge part for me in my young journey of working with the term neurodiversity and wanting to become a good OT in that regard in terms of what can I do differently, I think a huge part of it is re-imagining um, what social nor norms are. And, and I think another, and this is a really simple example, but even during long meetings, this idea that you have to be seated instead of being standing or not staring directly at a screen for three hours, that does not mean you're not listening. Um, I was recently at a conference on Friday at the OSOC conference, and there was a table that I was at where there was coloring, like there were crayons, and there were pictures. It was a private practice uh, session. I was so happy that I would, could just like look at something else, right? That I didn't have to be, uh, we, we were in three one and a half hour sessions. It was nice to know that for 20 minutes, I could do something else and be engaged that way. Um, I feel that that's key for probably the average occupational therapist is how do how are our own biases continuing to enforce this idea of normal behavior? Um, when can we stop and think about that? And I think even as a mom, I can say personally, that's that's where I've started to notice, okay, what what am I projecting because that was culturally appropriate and accepted by my parents growing up? Um, even the tone and the pitch and the way in which you speak, right? Uh, that's a huge part of, of this idea of so social norms, social behaviors, and, and what that actually means. And I think that we do need to collectively stop and think before judging people on certain actions or behaviors and be more accepting. Um, and I'll give another recent example. So Halloween was just a couple weeks ago. And... Um, and there was this thing on LinkedIn, which I thought was just brilliant. And it described that if if a, a little kiddo comes to the door and doesn't say thank you, or doesn't say trick or treat, or doesn't look you in the eye, you know, consider the alternative. Think of the developmental spectrum. Think of that this child is coming from a different place. It didn't use the word neurodiversity, but that's exactly what it was talking about. Um, and so I think that was a pretty amazing message to see out there as opposed to, you know, teaching about manners. And that would be the typical thing that we would do in society is this is what you should do to show that you're behaving as opposed to this is how we can better understand one another and support all kiddos out that are trick-or-treating. So 
Um, that that's my kind of filter of how I've I've recently experienced it. Um, I know we're running out of time on the podcast, but I wanted to give each of you an opportunity to share with our listeners what you think your take home message is on the topic, and and any way that they can reach out and contact you if they'd like to discuss further about it. Well. It's such a huge subject. I feel like we could be talking about this forever. So if folks do want to keep the conversation going, I'm always happy to talk about neurodiversity. I think the biggest takeaway is, like I said, just you don't necessarily have to run out and take a course or think, oh my goodness, I have to redo all of my professional development. I think starting from a perspective of listening and reflecting on your own biases or feelings about how other people act or what their interests are or preferences are and whether or not we can make a little space for difference. You know, that's not to say we all have our own boundaries or needs. I think that something that I've taken away from my own neurodiversity affirming practice is to be able to say, oh, this works for me or this doesn't work for me, but also like I said, just making space for differences, diversity, and perspectives that are different, you would be surprised uh, what people have to say or the way people say the world, see the world rather, and how that might change your own perspective. But all it is to say is I can be found, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. There aren't many other Naomi Hazlitts out there. So I'm on Twitter at Naomi Hazlitt, same name on LinkedIn. And I have a website, which is my name, NaomiHazlitt.com. I'd be happy to continue the conversation. Thank you, Naomi. And Melissa? Yeah, I would echo so much of what you said, Naomi. I think that, you know, there's, it's interesting because we're in this um, journey, even with when it comes to reconciliation and really, and equity and justice and really trying to identify our biases. And um, I think we can apply those to individual differences and people we meet as well. So and, and another take home message, I think, and it it sparked from what you were saying recently there, Justine, is, um, is also really, I would just um, uh, encourage everyone to think about their definition of inclusion as well and and you know i think there's there's a tendency to think well inclusion is welcoming everyone into my you know our world our systems our you know those traditional models however they might look i think about that in the classroom whereas inclusion i think is meant to mean um you know thinking about also the best environment and the best activities and the best learning strategies for each individual and that might not look like a regular classroom or a regular work environment or or like you know regular yeah hobbies and leisure so um leisure activities so so i think that would be a good thing to to consider as well um and yes i can be reached in our, or reached at linkedin as well same thing not a lot of melissa cross gary's out there easy to find um also on facebook um yeah, and definitely happy to chat with anyone who's interested. 
Thank you both so much. I know that uh, in in the lead up to having this podcast, we had another conversation entirely about neurodiversity. And I feel that we could run a podcast on neurodiversity once a week and and have a completely different conversation. Um, I want our listeners to know that there are a lot of resources out there. It's something that I think we can all benefit from learning more about and and incorporate into our practice in different ways. I think just as human beings, it creates an opportunity for awareness and just looking at the world in a different way than maybe traditionally speaking. It has been such a pleasure for me to learn more over these last few months about the term, about uh, those who identify, um, even just the labeling, how, you know, it's changed from persons with autism to back to autistic person. Uh, There's a lot of changes that are happening. And Naomi, you identified earlier in the podcast that giving statistics or using certain terms that this is constantly evolving. I think that's what's really exciting about this field. It it is a huge evolution. And you're right, Melissa, it's, it's landing right in the time of our TRC journey of us understanding equity and justice principles. I really love the advice that we need to uh, consider inclusion in what that word is. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's putting it at the forefront of critical reflection on what is inclusion in your day-to-day practice. So thank you both for the the, the stories and the amazing examples that you've shared. And uh, we look forward to hearing from our listeners. Thanks for having me, Justine. It was a pleasure. Yes, same. Thank you.